Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, the last few verses there of that chapter. Starts in this way, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we know your word is true. We know your word is wise. We know your word has the power to change our hearts and our minds and conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would accept these words, that led by the Spirit, we would embrace the message that you have given us, not only as something to which we can intellectually ascend, but something which molds us close to your heart and your mind. Help us to receive this word in obedience and in joy and in great conviction this morning, I pray. Amen. The big idea this morning, and I think this emerges fairly clearly out of the passage, is something like this. Have faith. God is keeping his promises to his people. Have faith. God is keeping his promises to his chosen people. Um, many of you have uh, met on the rare occasions they have been here, my friend Josh. Uh, and Josh is uh, always the life of the party. He's uh, six and a half feet tall. Uh, he's a big guy. He's never met a stranger. And he has a knack for getting himself into trouble, as well as anyone who dares to uh, believe him when he says, Oh, this is going to be really cool. Trust me. Just trust me. This one's going to be really cool. And I can say over the years that uh, we have trusted him, and sometimes it's worked out very well, and, and sometimes it's worked out in such a way that I thought no one's ever going to believe this, and we may not make it out alive. So occasionally this would mean growing up in southwestern Ohio that Josh had heard about, uh, oh, there's this, uh, there's this cool new place, a new restaurant we're going to go to. It's in Dayton, and, and you, you know, uh, They've got hot wings, but it's not that bad. You should just get, the, get what I get and just trust me. And, and then you get the wings and tears are pouring down your face and your sinuses are cleared and the, I can't believe I trusted you. Can I have another glass of milk, please? Um, 
Somewhere in the middle of college, we decided with two other friends, Josh and I and a couple of buddies, that we were going to go on a, a tour and visit eight ballparks in eight days and see eight different major league games and had an incredible time. And uh, Josh, who had been to some of these places with his dad and his uncle years before, uh, had uh, an unfounded confidence in his awareness of the geography of the East Coast, uh, particularly when we, we got to Philadelphia. He says, you know, I remember this place. We went and got a Philly cheesesteak. It's the best on the planet. I looked it up on the Internet, and this is like, 2000 when the internet had four sites on it and Josh said you just, you just gotta trust me you just gotta trust me and so we got off the highway and we're in our friend Mark's mom's minivan because that's what we were allowed to drive and we noticed the neighborhood is getting worse and worse and, 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 and worse and worse and Josh I really don't know that this is where we want to just, just trust me just trust me it's going to be great uh, it's got a billion five star reviews just trust me and uh, we get deeper and deeper into the neighborhood. And I said, Josh, do you notice anything that might make us uh, different from uh, everyone else who lives in this neighborhood? Right? Four of these things are not like the others. <laughs> oh, no, it's going to be great. It's, it's wonderful. And so we finally pull up to this Philly cheesesteak place. And um, there's, a car, there's one car parked out front, um, and it has no wheels. Uh, and I don't know if that's how it arrived, but my guess is that they were... And so we go inside, and we are uh, absolutely the only pigment-challenged folks in the entire restaurant, let alone the block in the neighborhood. And we walk up to the counter, and Josh goes, isn't this great? And, and we're all just sweating buckets here. And uh, the guy greets us on the counter, and he says, uh, we're all out. And <laughs> Josh goes, oh, no, I just saw a lady. She walked away with, uh-uh, we are all out. Josh, uh, it was time for us to go, buddy. Don't you understand that it's time for us? Oh, no, 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 it's great. And I'm like, no, it's really time for us to go. Uh, one of many, many times where Josh, I think erroneously, uttered the phrase, oh, just trust me, trust me, got to the van, uh, were surrounded by a group, and made our way out of the neighborhood and barely, well, anyway, that was not the last time that Josh said that, and it wasn't the last time that we very foolishly followed him into one of his schemes. We've just been in a passage here in Hebrews chapter 6 that has been absolutely among the most tense in the entirety of the New Testament, in the entirety of the Bible, a warning passage as dense and as terse and as sobering as any you might find in ancient literature. After pleading with his readers, one of the most pointed warnings in the Bible, our author then immediately pivots to comfort them. He knows how strong those words have been. He knows how they would have been received. He knows the dire consequences for ignoring that warning. And so he spends an inordinate amount of time, not only in the verses, uh, verses that immediately follow, but specifically here in 13 and following through the end of chapter 6, comforting them, reminding them of the great theological truth that is central to the book's entire argument. In Christ... God is keeping his promises that he made to Abraham. And like Abraham, we can inherit those promises through unswerving faith. You get a buddy like Josh. And everybody's got a buddy like Josh. Hey, you should watch this movie. Hey, we should try that restaurant. Hey, you should go here. And, and they keep saying, oh, trust me, trust me, trust me. And he's got about a 50% rating on what you can actually trust coming out of Josh. 
Now, here's the author of Hebrews, and he's saying, all right, here's how the Lord is different from all of those others who have made kinds of promises to you, who keep saying, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. He has always done what he said he will do. Always. Every single time. He's never led you somewhere he doesn't want you to go. He's never asked you to do something he couldn't help you to do. He has always done what he said he would do for you. And he's doing so even now. And he's doing so through Jesus Christ. You really can trust him. Unlike all others who may break their words, who may lose their vows, who may disappoint you, this God is entirely unique and that he never fails. He's actually, singularly worthy of your entire worship and devotion. You can trust him. You can trust that what he says he'll do, he'll actually do. And so this is what we find here. Starting in verse 13, we have the statement of the promise and the oath of God. And some of this is a little, there's a little ancient Near Eastern stuff we need to talk about historically so that we can understand this in the full depth of the meaning that the author means it for here at the end of chapter 6. But we want to start with this. After reassuring the faithful that they will indeed inherit the promises of God, and that's what he's been saying there in verses 9 and following, that we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your worth. And, and here you are, the serving the saints as you still do, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope. He wants them to have that assurance. He wants them to have that confidence. He wants them to know that they are rightly related to God. And so after reassuring them that they will inherit those promises, he explains why that confidence is so strong. How can I know? How can I, what is the proof that God will actually do this thing? And so that's what he says here, starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's verses 13 and 14. All right. Go ahead, if you will, just for a moment, and turn back with me to Genesis chapter 22. Keep your finger back in Hebrews 6, but go back to Genesis 22. Because there's some important historical context that lays out for us why we can know that God will actually keep his promises. How can I have that assurance? How can I have that confidence? And Abraham answers by saying, God made a promise and God made an oath. And because he couldn't swear on anything higher than himself, he swore by himself. Oath-making was kind of a big deal in the ancient world. We don't do that very much anymore, right? Uh, we do that almost uh, like, I swear, I'm going to, if that person slows down again here on 64 and i got to pump the brakes, I'm going to, you know. But it's not a formal thing like they did often in the ancient world where they would swear, I swear to you, I will do this thing, bye. Anyway, here in Genesis chapter 2, we have God swearing an oath. 
an oath that he will keep his promise. So when we later hear about these two unchangeable things, what we're talking about is God made a promise and God made an oath. Now you remember the promise. The, the promise that we often call covenant in the Old Testament, Genesis 12. He calls this guy named Abram out of his homeland, tells him to go to the land that he will promise him. He says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and use you as a blessing to bless the rest of the earth. And I'm going to give you a son and then more sons and they will have sons and they will have sons. And in fact, your progeny will end up being like the sand on the shore or the stars in the sky innumerable so many sons you'll have such that it will constitute the entirety of a nation. And that promise is then followed by this oath in Genesis 22. And here's why that oath was necessary for Abraham. It's been years since God made the promise. It's been years since, it's been almost 25 years since God presents himself to Abraham and makes this covenant with him. And finally, this old man and his old wife have a son. The promise has finally been renewed. Here is the child, miraculously given to Abraham and Sarah, who were far too old to have naturally born children. And God says, I want you to take your son and go to the mount that I will show you. And atop that mountain, you will build an altar. And on that altar, you will offer a sacrifice. And so Abraham gets his son, and they start hauling atop this mountain the things that are necessary to offer a sacrifice. And Isaac, who's been trained well by his father about how these sacrifices work, starts to notice that something is missing. And so back here in Genesis 22, we find this. In verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand, and you'll notice there's a lot of hand language here. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went both of them together and Isaac said to his father Abraham my father and he said here I am my son and he said behold the, the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for the burnt offering and Abraham said God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son so they went both of them together and when they came to the place of which God had told them Abraham builds the altar there and he lays the wood in order and he binds his son and lays him on the altar on top of the wood. This is exactly as the Lord God had commanded him. The only thing they had ever really wanted. The most miraculous gift that God had ever given them. And God says, give it to me. And Abraham proves to the very moment, God, whatever you ask, I give it to you. Then Abraham, verse 10, reached out his hand and took the knife. And I appreciate how the ESV keeps 
There's a violent word here. Some more modern translations dull this word. But he takes the knife to slaughter his son. But in that exact moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. There's an interesting Hebraism here. Even though he has taken the son and he has bound the hands of his son, he's taken the knife in his hands and he's opened his hands to the Lord. He has not withheld, that is, he has not clutched with his hands the son. He has opened his arms and he has opened his hands and he says, God, whatever you want from me, I'll give to you. Take it all. Because I trust you. I trust you. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And this is where we draw our connection back to Hebrews chapter 6 and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, go ahead and and turn back from that sobering scene back to Hebrews chapter 6. Because this is the reference that we're getting here. This is the reference that we're getting. For when God made a promise to Abraham, what was the promise? Land, blessing, to be a blessing, and you're going to get a son. When he had made that promise, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will bless you and multiply you. That is a direct callback to Genesis chapter 22. God proving in his nature, hey, I keep my promises. Now, this is an audience a couple of thousand years later who are being reintroduced to that story in Genesis chapter 22. And and what do they all have in common, these readers of Barnabas' letter? They're all Jews. They are the living embodiment of the fact that God keeps his promises. The thousands, the tens of thousands, the millions that emerged out of Egypt and cultivated this nation and built a temple and raised the holy city Jerusalem and worshiped to the one true God. All of them gathered around, drawn from the nations here on the earth to worship him. Proof that God is keeping his promise to Abraham. So will God keep his promises to us? Absolutely he will. Will God continue to keep his promise to the sons of Abraham, the great promise that he will, through Abraham, bless the entirety of the earth? In fact, he will. God keeps his promises. You can, in fact, trust him. And you've got to love this illustration of the person who, as well as anybody in history, embodies that kind of faithful patience necessary to inherit the promises. In fact, he does in verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, 
Let's pause for a moment here, and I want to ask if any of you have watched any good televangelists lately. Not that I'm encouraging you to, but some of you, maybe you lost the remote and it was stuck on that channel, and so you were forced to watch for a few minutes. And I'm sure that you have heard this passage talked about at some point in watching uh, some of these figures here on TV. Because the end of Hebrews 6 is one of their favorite chapters, one of their favorite passages in the entirety of the Bible. And I remember about four or five years ago hearing this passage preached on and thinking, um... This is, this is not how this works. This is not how any of this works. <laughs> because the guy got up and said, here we have proof. Here it is, right here. That if only we will live by faith, then God will give us everything he's promised us. Now there's some truth to that, that we are called to live by faith and that God is a promise-keeping God, but there was some confusion then about what that promise actually entailed. Because it's very easy, I think, for us to read this passage in this room with the background that most of us have in the Bible that we have been taught in the sermons and in the Bible study that we have partaken in and know that the promise that we are talking about is the promise of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this poor fool on television is saying, if you would only have faith, then you can receive the promises of God. And that's why I am so unbelievably rich, and I've never been sick a day in my life, and this is how you're going to get every promotion you've ever wanted and drive the fastest cars. And It took some solace a couple of weeks ago when that guy was on television, and he had been indicted for tax fraud, and they had repossessed the brand new Bugatti Veyron that he had bought for his wife for her birthday. <laughs> because he convinced enough people that if you just have enough faith and you send me the money, then you can be blessed like... Go ahead and just for a moment, turn back to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Maybe nowhere in Scripture do we find such a clear, insightful view of who Abraham is than Hebrews chapter 4. This is a passage which talks about the importance of faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. Well, what does faith look like? Well, it looks like the way that Abraham lived. He's the paramount example of faith in the New Testament. So that's why in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 16, it says, This is why it depends on faith, that is, and not the law, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the ones who share in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, that is, all of us who have faith in Jesus Christ. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Now skip down to verse 23, because here we find what that promise was. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And so it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now that's the substance of that promise. When, back in Hebrews chapter 6, 
the author says, you know that God is keeping his promises to you. You know that the covenant that was made with Abraham, that you will be blessed, you know that is being fulfilled. You can trust him. And that promise is explicitly that there is salvation for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, who died for our trespasses, who was buried in the grave, and was raised to give us new life. That's the promise. And that's the promise of which we can be sure, because God has sworn by himself an oath. He's given us a promise and an oath, these two unchangeable things. Oath-making was a really important venture in the ancient Near Eastern world. People made oaths all the time. Now, they were really concerned about not violating the third commandment, taking the name of the Lord in vain. And I want you to imagine a scenario here. Um, uh, I see Ella sitting here in the front row and says she gets picked on because she takes it well. And I say, Ella, I'm going to give you $10 cash, American. This is my ancient oath here. Uh, Ella, um, here's what I don't want to do in the ancient world. I don't want to say, I swear on the name of the Lord God of Israel, I will give you $10. Because I'm really afraid that if I don't give you the $10, that lightning is going to come from heaven and strike me down. Right? So in the ancient world, instead of swearing by the name of the Lord, violating the third commandment and risking imminent death from above, people started swearing by other things. Things that sounded really holy and were themselves set apart for the use of God, but weren't actually God himself. So people would swear, by the temple in Jerusalem, I will do. Or uh, by Jerusalem itself, by Zion's holy hill, I will. And they made all of these vows. Well, eventually we get to Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus says, guess what, guys? You're really bad at making vows. You break them all the time. Like, I'm going to break this one to Ella because I don't have $10. You get in so much trouble. Here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Let's just stop this whole vow-making venture entirely because you're so weak and you're so flawed and you're so flaky and you never do what you say you're going to do. Just, just do this. Just say what you're going to do and let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And then just do that thing. Deal honestly with the people around you and stop with all the oath-making deals because you are too weak you are too shady to fulfill all of your oaths. So let's just not make these oaths anymore. Just do what you say you're going to do. Well, now here's God. You've got to ask yourself the question, does that mean that God is uh, opposed to oath-making for everybody? No. He's just opposed to oath-making for you <laughs> because you break it all the time. But he's never broken an oath. And so this is why God isn't uh, himself now limited by personal inconsistency, why he can swear oaths upon himself. Now, there are two kinds of oaths in, in the ancient world. There's the executor-type oath, right? If I don't do what I say I'm going to do, may God execute me. May he take my life from me. That's an executor-style oath. There's also a surety-type oath, surety-type oath. And this, I think, is what we find. If we had time, we would go back to Genesis chapter 15. And now, you remember, in Genesis 12, God has already made this covenant with Abraham. And then in Genesis 15, he does something. He reveals his intent to fulfill that promise 
by obligating himself in a surety type oath, an oath that lives in accordance to this suzerain vassal treaty, this covenant that he makes with Abraham. So here's how it works. He gets a bunch of animals together. This was common in the ancient Near Eastern world. You'd find kings would make covenants and pacts and treaties with other nations, and then they would invite the leader of that nation to come, and they would work out a surety-type oath. They would take half a dozen different animals or so, animals that were often used in sacrifice, and cut them right down the middle, and then put half the animal on one side of the path and half the animal on the other side of the path. And, and they would do this in a line, and so there was a path between all of the pieces of the animals. And in Genesis 15, we find this exact same thing going on. Here, these animals have been brought, these animals that normally would have been used and sacrificed to God are now split in two, and they're set on opposite sides of the path. And then in the ancient world, this is what would happen. The one who was making the treaty and the one who was receiving the treaty would both walk through those pieces. And in this way, this is what they were saying in the shorty type treating. If I don't keep my end of the bargain, may what happened to these animals then happen to me. Now here's what's absolutely fascinating about Genesis 15 is the animals are split and they're laid on either side of the path. And God has made this great promise to Abraham, this great treaty, this great covenant of blessing and children and land. And, and so night has fallen and the fires have been lit and the animals have been split and God walks through the path. But never does God ask Abraham to walk through the path. He doesn't ask Abraham to swear an oath. He swears an oath by his own nature for Abraham. I've made a promise. I will keep this promise. And he can do that because his character never changes. He has sworn by himself on contingency of his own existence that he will do what he said he will do. Now think about that for a moment. God, the only unchangeable person in history, has made this promise, this oath. The summer before my senior year of high school, I went on a mission trip to Albania. And I spent several weeks there working in a small city called Vlora, which is right on the coast of the Adriatic Sea. It's, it's just above the northern border of Greece. And we worked at an orphanage. This was uh, pretty shortly after... This is 99, 2000, somewhere right there. Um, of course, the Berlin Wall had fallen a decade earlier. This is still, of all the Soviet nations, the poorest of the poor. Uh, they considered it a, a huge success as uh, one of the first atheistic nations, totally professing atheistic nation in the world. You saw the entrenched poverty, both fiscal and spiritual, of all the people there. So we're in this orphanage. And uh, you get to know the kids there on the first day. They're so happy to have this team of college students in. And, and we're playing with them and interacting with them. There's one little boy, and he's about four or five years old, and his name is Albano. And he, he just, he just, we just liked each other from the very get-go. And so he was my little shadow most of the day. Uh, and so uh, when they had a 
some older nurses who worked there at the orphanage, they would get them up in the morning and he would shoot down the stairs and we would eat breakfast together. Um, and then they would play together in the yard and, and lunch the same, we were right there. And if we went on a walk, all, he had to walk right beside me. I mean, this was my guy right here. But orphanages then didn't work the way that we think of them now because he wasn't technically speaking an orphan. The country was so spiritually and economically impoverished that there was a huge number of people who were alcoholics and drug addicts. And so the state established these orphanages where people could come and drop off their kids if they were too inebriated or too poor to take care of them. And that's what had happened with Albania. And so every two or three weeks for a single day, the parents could come check their kids out for 24 hours, kind of like you go to Blockbuster and give them your card and get a movie. Parents would come and get their kids. And they'd show up really early in the morning on Sunday morning, and they would already be lit. And there was absolutely nothing you to do to keep them from taking their kids. And so I remember really vividly the day um, the parents came, and probably two-thirds of the kids were taken back to their family compounds for the weekend. And the next morning, that Monday morning, all the parents showed up, and they were hung over, and they were strung out, and and here was this little boy that I had spent a couple of weeks with now and, and just full of life and vibrance and smiling and, and he looks like a whipped dog. He's just got his head down and his, his tears are streaming down his face, just bloodshot eyes and he's done. And who knows what horrors that little boy had to endure that whole night. So we, we spend the day trying to engage him as best we can and and let them know this is a safe place and this is where we can take care of you and this is where we can feed you and this is where we know you won't be harmed. And, and so normally the nurses would put all the kids to bed at night and on that night all the kids asked, can, can we take all of our college helpers upstairs so they can see our, they had one big room, uh, maybe a third this size and about this long and they had beds lined on either side of the walls and there was about 30 of them in there. And um, Albano is asking something. And it was interesting because what happened was the kids uh, asked us occasionally things and we didn't have any idea. They spoke a language called Shib. Um, I couldn't speak it. Every morning I, I would take the words that I tried to learn the night before after everybody had gone to bed and, and I would go into the kitchen where the old ladies were cooking and I would try out uh, my new saying in Shib the morning and I always butchered it. So I'd walk in and say, good morning, Mary Jazz, and they would just all start laughing at me because they knew I didn't. But the kids would talk to us all the time, and we usually just kind of smiled and nodded. And occasionally we'd say, hey, what are they saying? And they'd say, well, he really likes your sunglasses. Can he wear your sunglasses? Yeah, I'll let him wear my sunglasses. And then he would say something. Wh what did he say? Well, will, you, will you swear an oath? Will you vow a vow? Will you vow an oath that he will allow, be allowed to wear the sunglasses? Uh, yes, I will vow the oath that he can wear the sunglasses. Well, we're going out to the yard, and he wants to play with the ball. Will you vow an oath that you will play ball? Yes, yes, I vow the oath that I will play ball with him. He does not want to eat the rice at lunch. Will you vow an oath that he won't be able to? No, I can't vow that oath, right? He's going to have to eat his rice. <laughs> and the kids go to bed, and all the kids are talking, and all the kids are whispering, and they're talking to the nurses, and the nurse says, uh, they want you to vow an oath. <laughs> What's that? They want you to vow an oath that you will not leave the entire night. Well, what do we do? They found a big chair, and they drug the chair. And the chair was as wide as the doorway into their room. 
and the chair got stuck right there and, and sitting facing the hallway and they could just see my back, just the back of my head. I, me and another guy sat and we sat there all night. We vowed the oath. We will not leave you all the entire night. Who was that vow for? Because I'm committed at this point. I'm committed. I'm not going to let anything happen to these kids well. They were so afraid and they were so broken and they were so scared and they were so unsure and untrusting of people in authority who were supposed to be caring for them. They pleaded, will you vow an oath to us? Will you? Yeah. Okay. The oath was for them. It wasn't for the oath giver to steal his resolve to keep it. We were resolved to keep the oath. Yes, we promise. We'll, we'll stay here. We promise. Yes, yes. Will you vow an oath? God vows an oath by his own character, his own divine existence to prove to us who are weak and scared and broken, who lack so much trust. Yes, yes, by my own self. There's no shadow of turning with God. There's no chance that he will not fulfill his promise. There's no reason he has to resolve himself in extra and in order to prove that he will in fact keep the promise. He gives them the promise and he gives them an oath to prove to them that he is serious about doing what he said he would do. It's superfluous to him but it's vital for a people whose faith is struggling. And so that's why it's given. He says he guaranteed it with an oath, verse 17, so that these two unchangeable things, by them this promise in the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. God has made the oath. And I love the way he goes on to describe who this God is. He's, he's incapable of lying. 18 through 20, we get these great grand descriptions of his character and his nature. He's described as the unstoppable plan maker, right? The unstoppable. He will bring these things to pass. He's the relentless hope bearer. We can hold fast to the hope set before us, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's the immovable anchor. And then we get reminded of the substance of the hope. What is the hope? What actually is the hope? Well, the hope is a person. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Who is that? It's Jesus where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In two chapters ago, we're told that we can have confidence so that we can march into the holy place before the throne of God and make our plea to him. Can I really do that? Can I, an abject sinner, really approach a holy God? Yes, I can. 
because Christ has died for my trespasses and has risen, risen to give me new life. He has been the forerunner who has gone into the holy place before me and made a way that I might follow him there. That's the substance of the promise. That's what is guaranteed by the oath. What does this passage tell us about who God is? It tells us that he's unchangeable. The great theological term there is immutable. He does not change his plans. His nature does not change. He is unalterable. He is, by his own essence, unable to differ from the perfection and the beauty and the holiness which will describe him forever and always. You can trust that God will do exactly what he says he will do. Then what do you do? What do you do in return? Well, it tells us, like Abraham, I will be patient. Like Abraham, who waited decades for the will of God and the promise to be fulfilled to him and then was willing to give it up, I will, wait, I will be patient. Waiting is the hardest thing, I tell you, absolutely. This life feels long sometimes. And the promises to which we are in inheritance seem so distant. But like Abraham, I'll be patient. Secondly, I'll flee for refuge in Jesus. And finally, I'll hold fast to the hope that I have in him. Now, uh, let's talk about illustrating sermons just for a moment. Every week I read the passage. And I want to know a few different things. I want to know about historical background. I want to know about uh, the systematic theologi theological terms that uh, underpin the passage. I want to know uh, historical background theology. I, I want to know about the meaning of certain words and how they were used and how they might be used in this passage and others. I, I want to know... Um, how this passage relates to other passages and, and these are the things that I'm working on and then somewhere in the middle of the week after I've started cultivating a sense of what the passage is talking about I start thinking about illustrations how do we illustrate the substance of a thing that is relatable to people so that it can more impress upon them the substance of what's actually being said there some illustrations work and some don't they're not inspired Right? Scripture is inspired. Illustrations are adjacent. Right? Now, let me tell you what would have been easy, I think. When we talk about having patience and clinging to the hope that we have in him and, and resting in the refuge, as a preacher and, and as a, someone who thinks about how to illustrate how this works, that word refuge just immediately jumps out at me, Right? And here's what would be really easy. You ready for this? And some of you preach and teach, and you've done this, so you know. It would be really easy to rip that word out of its context and to make it so vague that you could, you could construe for yourself in that, just in that word something that would preach really well and have nothing to do with this passage. Okay? Here is the refuge. And here's how I would normally structure that illustration. Let's think of something calamitous, uh, like a hurricane or a tornado or a home invasion, some sort of scary thing. And let's think about the refuge that you have. Well, I know that 
Um, in a tornado, I go to the innermost room of the house, or a hurricane, I flee from the coast, or if somebody were coming in, I, I lock the doors and go to the... And so by analogy, you can draw a sense of the meaning and substance of refuge. But, but you can, if you're not careful, make something so kind of abstract that you can lose the context altogether. Now, I want you to bear with me here just for a moment because it would be really easy to get up and to preach about refuge and talk about from all the storms that are in your life, from all the calamities and all the sickness and all the promotions you never received and all that. And, and, and it's, you know what? It's just it's the prosperity gospel all over again. I could get up here and talk about the vagaries of spiritual battle and all the rest. That's not what this passage is explicitly talking about, though. Context is king when reading a passage. And I want you to think about the context of the refuge that Jesus provides, because this is crucial. For these people who lacked faith in Christ, where were they all going? Well, the author tells us they were all going back to the faith that they had known before. They were all going back to Judaism. They were all going back to trying to attain justification by the law. They were all going back to a system grounded in the merits of their own works. They were all going back to the hope that if they just did enough good stuff, God would have to be, he would be obliged to let them into heaven. And sure, they would offer their sacrifices, their meaningless, ineffectual sacrifices over and over and over again. But they were leaving grace. They were leaving atonement through the death of Jesus the Messiah. They were leaving the core tenet of Christianity, which is you cannot earn your own way. Someone must earn the way for you. So to recontextualize what it means to seek refuge in Christ, it means this. We are not seeking some vague feeling of comfort from God. That's not it. What we're actually seeking is a reorientation and a hope that expresses this. I cannot earn my way. I cannot go back to a Judaism which denies the grace that has been wrought by Jesus Christ. The refuge that I have in him is that he has earned my way, that I could never have been righteous enough of my own volition, and that I am entirely dependent on his death and his resurrection that I might enter into the holy place. The refuge that I seek is the refuge of the grace wrought at Calvary. That is explicitly the refuge being discussed here in Hebrews chapter 6. It is a refuge of dependence on Christ, exclusive dependence on Christ. And so that's why it seems exceedingly appropriate this morning that we do what we are about to do. We are going to ingest these elements as a reminder that if we were to flee from Christ, 
that we would be embracing a religion that dictates that we must make our own way. But if we would seek refuge in him, then explicitly and implicitly, what we have sought is not a religion but a savior who makes a way for us that we could not make for our own selves. And so this is the covenant that has been wrought by the blood of Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, and the oath which has verified its veracity. Here is what Jesus has done to bless us and a promise that was made to Abraham millennia ago that we might enter into the holy place. So I'm going to ask Jason and CJ, two of our elders, to come. You do not need to be a member of Rocky Mount Bible Church to ingest these elements, but you must be a follower of Jesus Christ. About that, Paul is extremely serious. You have heard before the commendations that if your heart is not in the right place to take it, then this week just abstain for your own benefit. We take it not sadly, but soberly, sober-minded as to what it cost our Christ in order to make good on God's promise. So I'm going to give you a moment, a quiet moment, to reflect on the reality of what was actualized through the cross of Christ.